0: A retreat. In the novel, one of the characters says that self-knowledge is always bad news. And you know, we come here from the busyness of our lives. We sit down wanting to experience some calm, some peace, some inner stillness. And instead find ourselves faced especially on the first day with so many different kinds of difficulties. There's sleepiness, there's boredom, there's discomfort, there's expectation, there's judging, there's wanting, there's desire. And so where is this peace and calm that we were looking for? Most of these states of mind fall into categories of what the Buddha calls in in the teachings the five hindrances. And the Buddha singled out these five mind states precisely because they're very seductive. We get caught up in them again and again. So this is what he said about the five hindrances. He said, when we attend to them carelessly They cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, leading away from awareness. These are the difficult states of mind that we get caught up in. But it's helpful to understand that the bad news which is the awareness that self-knowledge is always bad news, is actually good news. Because when we do attend to these hindrances carefully rather than carelessly, they actually become the cause of much greater clarity and ease in our lives. So tonight I'd like to talk about them how we can recognize them when they arise, not only in meditation practice, but actually how they manifest in our lives in the world, and how we can work with these different mind states. I'm gonna talk about them in the reverse of the usual order. Because the usual order starts with desire. But when I start talking about desire, i found over the years that I never get beyond it. So I'd like to go backwards and see, maybe we'll get to it. So in reverse order, the first of these seductive mind states, the hindrances, is doubt. Now this word really can refer to different qualities within us, one of which is helpful and the other is not so helpful. So what is helpful doubt? Helpful doubt is that quality of investigation, of inquiry. Helpful doubt is when we question our experience, what is this? What's going on? What is the nature of what's happening? In Zen Buddhism, they call it the great doubt. So it's really a quality of awakening. It's the opposite of blind belief or dogmatic belief. It's the good kind of questioning. The unhelpful kind of doubt we might call skeptical doubt or bewildering doubt. And this is the quality in our minds of indecision, of uncertainty. It's like coming to a crossroads and not knowing which way to go. And the mind simply goes back and forth between alternatives, not going anyplace. It really brings us to a standstill. It brings us to a standstill in meditation. It brings us to a standstill in our life choices. The effect of this kind of doubt is summed up very uh, well by that famous American wise man, Yogi Berra who said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. And that's what happens. We come to a fork in the road, take it. Well, take what? Take which one? And so we're paralyzed. When this kind of doubt is strong in our minds, this indecision, this uncertainty, it doesn't even give us an opportunity to make a wrong turn, to make a wrong choice, and to learn from the mistake. Rather, it just keeps us in that state of paralysis not doing anything. There's a book that came out a couple of years ago, uh, a novel called The Life of Pi. I don't know that any of you have read it by Ian uh, Martel. It's a wonderful book. And there's one line in this book, <clears throat> which I like a lot. He says, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is like choosing immobility as a means of transportation. <laughs> it doesn't take us any place. So in our meditation practice, we can see doubt arising in many ways. It takes many forms. Doubts arise about the practice itself. What does sitting here watching our breath have to do with anything? You know, it's really useless. I could be home enjoying myself instead of in, out, in, out, in, out. And so there's just a lot of doubt that can arise in the mind. What's the purpose of doing this? Well, maybe we're comparing this practice with other practices we've done. You know, the breath is so boring. Maybe I should be doing Tibetan chanting or Sufi dancing or something that is a little more exciting. doubt about the practice, doubt about the teachers. You know, many of you have probably practiced in different traditions with different teachers, having different perspectives. So the mind starts comparing. You know, maybe that one is better, or that one is quicker, or that one is higher, or that one is deeper. And the mind starts (coughs) going back and forth in that kind of doubt. But the most dangerous kind of doubt, which has so many ramifications for our lives, is self-doubt. Doubt Doubt about our ability to practice. Am I doing this right? I can't do it. It's too hard. This isn't the right time. I should wait till next year to come. The mind just spins out in these kinds of thoughts. When doubt is attended to carelessly, as the Buddha said, when we're not careful in our awareness of it, it's a very debilitating force in our lives. It undermines ourselves. We're always holding back, we're always pulling back. There's an interesting phrase in English, you know, where we say someone is plagued by doubt. That's an interesting use of language, because it is like a plague. It's a plague that weakens us. instead of going forward and making the experiment, whether it's in meditation or anything else in our lives, instead of just going forward and making the experiment, undertaking the endeavor, so that we can see for ourselves whether it's a benefit. Or it's not. When doubt is present, we simply stay lost in endless speculation. We're not actually doing anything. We're not tasting it. And the mind just stays in that place of indecision. It doesn't allow for the opportunity for us to investigate and see for ourselves. The doubting mind, this kind of skeptical, bewildering doubt, is exhausting. You know, this endless speculation, should I do it, shouldn't I do it this way, that way? And it's likened to a thorn which keeps jabbing us. And we're not aware of this quality in the mind, this kind of thought pattern in the mind. It keeps jabbing, jabbing us, and the mind gets very irritable gets discouraged, gets worn down. Now, the great seduction of doubt, and this is what makes it so interesting to observe, the great seduction of doubt is that it comes masquerading as wisdom. These very wise-sounding voices start arising in the mind. And it sounds like wisdom to us. And so we buy in and we believe it and we don't move forward. We just stay caught in the endless thought loops. So how to work with it? How do we actually incorporate this into our practice? The first way is to recognize these voices of doubt when they arise in us. As soon as you become aware, I can't do this, doubt and tape. It's too hard, doubt and tape. I'll come back next year, doubt and tape. Who are these teachers anyway? What do they know? Doubt and tape. And so we catch it. We're not caught up in it. We're not lost in it. When we can see doubt in this way, and we catch it quickly in our minds, then we begin to develop the insight to really see with wisdom that this doubting tape is just a passing thought. It's an empty thought. In and of itself, it has no power. The only power it has is the power we give it. And this is where mindfulness, awareness, attentiveness is so freeing. You know, in the moment that we come back to the breath, we come back to a step, we come back to a sensation, and we simply come back to the present moment, is there any problem? Is there any doubt about the breath? Is there any doubt when we're hearing a sound? No, because we're connected with what's actually happening. Sometimes if people have persistent doubts, persistent questions, it can also help to get some intellectual clarification about the process, and that's the purpose of the talks, the group discussions, the time for questions. This is a very well-trodden path. For thousands of years, people have been exploring their minds, their hearts, and so it's very well-mapped and well-understood. So there actually is a way to clarify questions and confusion. So this is the first of the hindrances, bewildering doubt, skeptical doubt. The second of the hindrances is a constellation of thought and feeling, of restlessness, of worry, of agitation. The mind gets restless and agitated when there's too much energy and not enough concentration or steadiness of mind to hold the energy. So it's like the energy is spilling over the container. And it can take different forms. You've probably experienced some of them today. There can be restlessness of the body. You know, we're sitting, we're trying to sit still, and at times, there can be so much restlessness, it just feels like we want to jump out of our skin. It's so hard to sit still at that time. One time when I was, I was practicing in a monastery, a Buddhist monastery in Burma, and it's very, you know, everybody is very mindful and moving slowly and carefully. Well, I was attacked. With this wave of restlessness, and it would come every evening about the same time. And I don't know if the cycle that I was in, but every evening around eight o'clock, I would be filled with this restlessness in the body. I could not sit still, and I had to kind of get up, and I was sort of running around to the edge of the monastery. I'm sure the monks thought I, who's this crazy Westerner? But it can get very strong. Sometimes it's not the body that's restless. Sometimes the body may be sitting quite still and calm, but the mind is a whirlwind of restless activity. can't settle down. You know, we're just lost in thoughts and fantasies and plans. Mind jumping from one thing to another. We can get caught in obsessive thought patterns you know, obsessive worry about things that haven't happened or obsessive regret about things in the past there's also a phenomena called yogi mind and you've probably gathered by now that we used we use the term yogi to refer to anybody who's meditating now, this is the term they used in Burma so we kind of carried that over here. So you're all yogis. So there's a phenomenon we call yogi mind. And that is when thoughts start arising out of all proportion, either to their importance or even to their connection with reality. And I'll just give you some examples. We were doing one retreat, leading one retreat out in Oregon, and there were planes going overhead. And one yogi got so disturbed by the planes going overhead that they went to the manager and said, we have to write a letter to the president of the airline so they can reroute the planes. <laughs> and this wasn't a joke. <laughs> this is... The mind just got obsessed you know, with the noise of the planes and what we could do about it. One time, I was on retreat at our center in Massachusetts (coughs) IMS. And I was in a room way down at the end of a corridor, quite far away from the kitchen. And I was sitting in my room, in, out, in, out, in, out. And this was in the winter, and so the heating was on. And I started hearing these voices coming through the pipes. I was hearing whole conversations and my mind got this idea that I was hearing these voices, people working in the kitchen. This is like, it would be like a room way at the end of this place, but I had the idea that somehow the voices were carried up in the pipes, through the pipes, down the corridor, into my room, and I was hearing all kinds of things, that these friends were getting divorced and somebody had killed somebody, and I totally believed it. I had to go down to the kitchen and say, what's going on? Why aren't you telling me about all this stuff? (laughs) Yogi mind. When the thought comes, this is really important. Particularly on retreat, let that be a warning to you. It's the this is really important thought. 90% of the time, it's Yogi mind. So what to do with all of these kinds of restlessness, whether it's restlessness of the body, whether it's this restlessness agitation of the mind? We want to understand the energetic process. That is, there's too much energy relative to the concentration. That the energy is spilling over and the mind is not stable enough, steady enough to hold it, So we need to bring these two into balance. Sometimes we're restless, there's not enough stability, because our mindfulness, our attention is too lax. We're not really paying close attention. And so the mind just wanders off easily and gets caught up. So we need to rein the mind in a little bit as one way of doing that. You know, we've talked a lot about feeling the breath, being aware of the breath, just one breath at a time. Well, one breath is already too much. When the mind is restless in particular, really work with being aware of a half breath. Your know, whole breath, you know, in and out, there's plenty of opportunity for the mind to get lost. Half a breath, okay, just the in-breath, or just the rising movement, that's our intention. Half breath at a time. In-breath, phew, finish. Out-breath, just half breath. You do it half breath by half breath, actually it doesn't take long for the mind to get a bit more concentrated, because we're working with an interval that's actually workable for us. Sometimes it's helpful when the mind is very restless, at the beginning of a sitting or the beginning of a walking, to reaffirm, to rearticulate to ourselves what our intention is for being here. At one point, and again, in you know, my practices, I was working with the restless mind and I was just getting lost again and again in fantasies and plans. At one point, I remember saying to myself, Joseph, do you want to think or do you want to get enlightened? You know, and I was just reminding myself, what am I doing here? Do I want to use this time just to just to indulge the wandering mind or do I want to actually fulfill my purpose. And it was helpful to remind myself of what my purpose was. So sometimes we're restless because we're too lax. But sometimes we can get restless because we're too tight. We're actually trying too hard and we're we're trying to force it. And that tightness makes the mind restless. So in that case we want to expand the awareness, make it more spacious, make it more open. One way of doing that is very simply by listening to sound. You know, if you feel like you're getting agitated or restless trying to be with the breath, you feel like it's getting too tight, just settle back and open to listening, open to hearing the mind can get very wide, very open, sounds are coming and going, the mind becomes like the sky. As we settle into the spaciousness, then the restlessness begins to subside, and then we can again reconnect with the breathing. Another avenue for developing the spaciousness of mind is an instruction my first (coughs) teacher gave it is the most basic meditation instruction you will ever hear. It's Okay, ready? He said, sit and know you're sitting and the whole of the Dharma will be revealed. That's all, sit and know you're sitting. So when it gets too confusing or the mind is too restless or too agitated or whatever, we can come back to the simplicity of simply knowing that we're sitting. Because just that is enough to bring us into the present moment. We don't need to struggle and we don't need to fight with anything. Sit and know you're sitting. Everything is revealed in that. And restlessness is like this whirlwind going through space. It's not a problem if we become the space. And so that's what we want to do when this energy is strong in us. So there's doubt, there's restlessness, agitation, worry. The third of the hindrances, or these seductive mind states, is one that I'm sure many of you experience today. In Buddhist, Buddhist jargon for it, it's called sloth and torpor. You know, it's that quality of sleepiness, of dullness, of heaviness of mind. Some years ago, I was reading a book on (coughs) natural history, and it was describing the animal called a three-toed sloth, and I hadn't really known anything about it. Well, this animal, the three-toed sloth, has the nature, it will just hang by its foot from the limb of a tree, and it'll just hang there. And it said, it's so slothful I don't know whether the name of the animal or the name of the mind state came first, but it said you could you could shoot a gun right next to its ear and it wouldn't even turn its head. And then every once in a while, you know, it'll hang there for long periods of time, every once in a while it'll make its way down the tree, eat a little bit, have some sex, mate, go back up, and then just hang there. Well that's a very good description of this mind state. You know, when when we're just heavy and dull, and there's not a lot of light, there's not a lot of clarity in the mind. It's very common the first day or two of a retreat. You know, we go through a lot of energy swings: times when we're really (laughs) alert, and times when we're filled with sloth and torpor. And it's understandable. Because mostly in our lives, in the world, we are moving and going on the energy of stimulation. You know, stimulation for what we eat, stimulation of other people, stimulation of our work, stimulation of the media, stimulation of all our senses. Come on, retreat. We are cutting off a good part of the stimulation that generally is driving our lives. You know, we're not talking, we're not writing, we're not reading. There's not a lot going on here. And so what happens? In the lack of stimulation, the mind says must be time to go to sleep. And So it, it goes into that state. There's a very interesting part of the meditative process which is that as we go through the stage of sloth and torpor, we settle into a deeper source of energy within us. You know, this whole mind-body is an energy system. Mostly we're not in touch with it because we rely on stimulation. As we get quieter, we go through the period of sleepiness or drowsiness, and then we come through that cloud, we actually become connected to the energy which is our life force. And whether it happens in the course of a weekend or not, maybe for some of you will, maybe not, but over time in meditation, that's what happens. And so we start connecting with a a source of tremendous vitality in our lives. And it's a much healthier source of energy. So one meaning of sloth and torpor is this drowsiness or this dullness. But there's also a deeper meaning to it. And it points to a more profound danger. The deeper meaning of this mind state which we find in our meditation and in our lives outside, is the pattern of withdrawing from difficulties. In the face of difficulty, the pattern of retreat, of withdrawal. And for people, this works in different ways. You know, some people may be very good and effective at meeting the challenges in their lives and outside, but then have a lot of difficulty actually meeting the difficulties of the inner world, or it may be the reverse. Just as doubt can come masquerading as wisdom, sloth and torpor, this quality of retreating from difficulty, That often comes masquerading in our minds as compassion. We might feel tired, we might feel restless, we might feel discouraged, and this very kindly sounding voice starts arising in the mind. Let me take care of myself. I've been working hard. I think I'll take a little rest. A nice nap will be just the thing. And it sounds so compassionate. You know, we're we're taking care of ourselves. And of course, there are times when we do need rest. So it's to acknowledge that. But very often, it's not that. It's just that we've come up against a certain difficulty, a certain challenge, and the mind doesn't want to go forward to meet it. This is the deeper meaning of sloth and torpor the pulling back from difficulty. Years ago in India, this goes back you know, to the to the late 60s. I was studying with a teacher named uh, Gohankeji, and the courses were pretty rigorous. We would get up at four in the morning. There would be a two-hour sitting before breakfast, and then you know, intensive meditation throughout the day. Well, I would get up every morning, you know, about quarter to four, go into the hall. 4 o'clock, and I always got into the hole early because I wanted a place against the wall. You know, so I could kind of lean back when I had to. So I got to my seat, and I started meditating after a little while, feel a little tired, lean back against the wall, and very quickly I was asleep. Next day, same thing happened. This went on like for a week or 10 days. You know, every morning, the same pattern. So this kindly voice started arising in my mind. You know, why are you doing this? You might as well just sleep, get up for breakfast, then you'll be really alert and wakeful. And you know, You're just wasting your time coming into the hall, falling asleep each day. But I didn't listen to the voice. You know, I, just, I just kept coming. And it was amazing. One morning... I went into the hall, I sat down, and I was awake for the entire time. And since that time, I haven't succumbed to early morning sleepiness. <laughs> I mean, it can come later, later in the day. But it was such a useful lesson to me because it showed me that even when we think nothing is happening, we think it's a waste of time, we're not making any progress if we just keep persevering, we keep meeting the challenge, we keep putting ourselves into the experience, something is happening. But it's happening at its own time, not on our time. So we need to be careful of that voice, you know, and to see, okay, is it really a time to pull back and rest? Or is it just sloth and torpor wanting us to retreat? When this quality of retreating from difficulty is strong in our minds and strong in our lives, it really takes the joy. It takes the joy out of the practice. It takes the delight out of our lives, because we're always pulling back. We're always holding back. So how to work with sloth and torpor? This is a common state Just just out of curiosity, how many of you had sleepiness today, sometime during the day? (laughs) It's a common state, so we need to know how to work with it. So the first step is recognizing it quickly, so we're alert for the arising of it. You know, we're sitting and we begin to feel the sleepiness coming, the heaviness coming, the dullness coming, try to recognize it as quickly as possible to note it. We can bring a quality of investigation to the sleepiness itself. And so it's like we ask ourselves the question, what is this experience that I'm calling sleepiness? You know, it's so easy just to put the word on, oh, I'm so sleepy, I'm so tired, I'm so dull, but we don't really look at it. So we can bring that investigative mind, what am I actually experiencing? What do I feel in the body? What do I feel in the mind? And the very act of investigation often arouses energy, makes us more wakeful. We want to arouse the energy factor as the antidote. And so sometimes it's through investigation. Sometimes we do it through the walking meditation. Sometimes walking faster. And counterintuitively, sometimes it's walking slower. On one retreat with uh, a Burmese teacher, Saida Upandita, he he first came to this country to teach us in 1984, very fierce, he's kind of old school, not the comforting type, (laughs) he's the real warrior. So we we were only sleeping four hours a night, very intensive, so I was dealing with a lot of sloth and torpor, sleepiness. And he emphasized a lot slow movement. So there were some people who were really creeping. You know, I had one friend who might have taken 45 minutes to get from this side of the room to that side. That's how slowly they were walking. So one time I was walking next to this friend that was in the dining room up at IMS, and she was was just creeping along. And I was feeling really sleepy, and I tried walking faster, didn't work then I had the thought I was noticing her well what will happen if I really slow down and I made it a game I'm going to see if I can walk slower than she can and I said how slowly can I walk and still move right? that was the challenge to myself it was amazing within two steps I was totally awake because the energy and the interest of trying to do that woke me up. So it's worth playing, just experimenting and seeing, okay, we're sleepy, we're heavy, we're feeling dull. What kind of investigation will really help us? Sometimes walking faster, sometimes walking slower. we really want to see difficulties as challenges rather than something to withdraw from. That is, that is the way we can really work with and overcome this deeper meaning of sloth and torpor. Okay, so there's doubt, just that, that bewilderment, that confusion, that indecision, never doing anything because we're just going back and forth thinking about it. There's restlessness and agitation and worry. There's sloth and torpor. The fourth of the hindrances, which is, again, very common and has very profound implications, not only for how we live in the world, but for our culture, and that is the mind state of aversion. And aversion takes many forms. It can be anger, it can be hatred, it can be fear, it can be annoyance, it can be irritation, it can be ill will, it can be the judging mind. It's this quality of mind that arises in response to things that we experience as being unpleasant. Something unpleasant, something we don't like, and very often some kind of aversion arises anger, ill-will, etc. This is very easy to see in relationship to physical pain. you know. And so that's why on a meditation retreat it's illuminated quite quickly. We're sitting and we begin to feel some kind of discomfort, pain in the knees, in the back, in the shoulders, wherever. What is our first response to it? We don't like it. You know, we have aversion to it. What happens? We contract. Of course, the contraction just makes it worse. It's not a skillful strategy. It's much more helpful to see that and then, okay, can I relax into this discomfort? Can I open to it? And that, of course, is all practice. Aversion arises often when we think about past unpleasant or painful experiences. We can be sitting here, everything is fine right now, but the mind starts going over something that happened in the past. And it's quite interesting, it might even be something that's already resolved, but the mind starts chewing on it. And we start thinking of what this person did or that person did, and we start feeling anger, we start feeling annoyance, we start feeling ill will. But what's more remarkable than that is that we can feel anger, or anger can arise, about things that haven't even happened yet. We're sitting here, and we imagine what might happen. You know, we create these scenarios, and I've seen this in my own mind so many times. You know, IMS is now is a pretty big organization, so it has all the stuff of organizations. You know interpersonal stuff and so often there'll be a meeting coming up and I know it's going to be you know a difficult issue and I'll know people have various views on it one way or another and I can be sitting or walking and I'll just imagine somebody saying this or that or doing this and that and getting really irritated in my mind. It hasn't happened and most of the time it doesn't happen. And meanwhile, I've been lost in that state for however long I wasn't aware of it. So we want to be mindful. We want to see how quickly can we catch it. We can start feeling ill will and aversion about unpleasant situations on retreat or in our lives. You know, things that actually are happening that are not as we would like them to be. And a conditioned reaction is to start feeling anger or ill will about it. But the retreat center, there's a phenomenon that we call the window wars. Because especially in colder weather, some people like the windows open for fresh air. Some people like the windows closed because they don't want the cold coming in. And it's amazing the intensity of feeling that can be generated over whether the windows are open or closed. Sometimes when we're going through a difficult time, you know, maybe we're dealing with pain or discomfort in the body or a particular difficult emotion in our lives. If we're not mindful Sometimes we start projecting that difficulty out onto other people. And so there's a phenomenon called Vapassana Vendetta, where there's one person on the retreat who just bugs you, you can't stand them. You don't like what they're wearing, and you don't like the way they walk, and you don't like the amount of food they're taking, and you may not even know them, you know, you, but it's just the mind projecting our own discomfort onto this other person. I want to read something. This is one of my favorite things. It was by the writer Anne Lamott. And she was describing how difficult it was, she's a writer, to deal with the triumphs of other writers, especially when they're friends. Okay, so this is what she wrote. It can wreak just the tiniest bit of havoc with your self-esteem that you are hoping for some small bad things to happen to this friend. For say, her head to blow up. (laughs) (laughs) Our minds will do that. And it is helpful to have a sense of humor about it rather than to ignore it or deny it or get lost in that feeling. So how to work with all the different forms of aversion, of ill will, annoyance, irritation, even hatred. (coughs) We want to recognize it, we want to become mindful when it arises, as with all the others. And here the noting can be very helpful. Ill will, anger, where we really note it, acknowledge it, and not get lost in a judgment about it. So we're not judging ourselves for having it, and we're not condemning the anger, we're just seeing it, we're just aware of it. Sometimes we need to hold the anger, or the hatred, or the ill will, really in the arms of compassion. The Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it, we don't run away from it, we just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with the utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone, it is with our mindfulness. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. When the sunshine penetrates a flower, the flower cannot resist. It has to open itself and show its heart to the sun. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack, and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. So this is a very helpful approach at times where the anger arises and instead of condemning it, instead of judging it or condemning ourselves, we hold it with compassion. We see the suffering of it. Sometimes we want to take a more warrior-like, not the tender holding of it, but if we've been Caught over and over again in repetitive patterns that we've seen a million times already. Sometimes we want to take the sword of wisdom with our minds and, okay, enough. I don't need to do this. A mental note that I just discovered at this retreat Or word, last night or this morning? So anyway, I was just sitting watching my mind about something that was not that skillful, and the note came, not helpful. And it was amazing, it was a very good note, not helpful. I don't need to do this. With patterns of anger or ill will or aversion that we've seen a lot, you know, that we don't have to worry that we're suppressing anything, We've been through it many times. We can actually apply that sort of wisdom. This is not helpful. I don't need to keep doing this and come back to the breath. So we wanna play with both sides. Sometimes it's that holding with compassion. Sometimes it's really cutting it with wisdom. Sometimes with anger, with strong anger or ill will, there are associated emotions which are like underground springs which are feeding it. And that if we don't see the associated emotions, so then it keeps fueling the anger within us. For example, sometimes underneath anger there may be feelings of hurt. There may be feelings of fear. There may be feelings of self-righteousness well, I should feel angry because such and such happened. If we don't see those underlying feelings, then the anger will always be there. And so that kind of investigation can be helpful. What else is happening? What else am I feeling that I might not be acknowledging? One yogi once, in doing this, noticed that he felt anger in order to avoid feeling fear. He didn't or was not willing to acknowledge the fear, and so that non-acknowledgement just spilled out in anger. It's very helpful to see the possibility, it's okay to feel fear that's an emotion, like everything else, we can become accepting of it. It does not have to drive us to anger or hatred. Anger is a very seductive state because it makes us feel powerful. It's a strong energy, but it's rooted in an unwholesome state of mind. The Buddha, he used this phrase, he said, anger with its poisoned source and honeyed tip. It has a honeyed tip. We get caught up in it because we feel the energy, we feel the power of it, but its source is poisoned. And so in our practice, we want to discover more skillful sources of power and vehicles of change. When we give up or let go of these feelings of hatred or anger or fear, it doesn't mean that we become apathetic in the world. It means we find a deeper source of energy and power, one that is much more sustaining. So this is a very impactful understanding to bring to our lives. with all of these emotions and particularly with aversion and anger and ill will it's not a question of suppressing them at all it's not that we push it down rather we want to open to it become mindful of it feel it understand it but not drown in it not be lost in it and that's the art of our practice the art of meditation So the last of the hindrances is desire, the wanting mind, and this wanting mind is a very strong energy in the world, in our own lives, and we see it on many levels. We see it on the level of obsessive passions, where people's whole life can be caught up in some obsession. We see desire at work in addictive cravings. You know, it's just that power of addiction, which we know can be so powerful. It can come in the form of recurrent fantasies, where we just get lost again and again and again in pleasant fantasies. It's the wanting mind, it's desire. Or just a passing whim, you know, a passing whim that wants something. On retreat, of course, the field of our desires is narrowed considerably. We don't really have that much scope for fulfillment of many desires, but as you may have noticed, it doesn't really slow the mind down that much. Because Even sitting in meditation, the mind can create all kinds of wanting. Again, it may not happen in the course of just a short weekend, but with people in meditation and on retreat, very often there are powerful sexual fantasies where we get caught up in this, in this very strong energy that's so seductive and can be so pleasant. and spend a long time lost in these fantasies. The counterpart to the Vipassana vendetta is the Vipassana romance. You know, you just I somebody here that you're attracted to and the mind can create a whole scenario you know after the retreat I'm going to meet them and talk to them we're going to go out on a date we're going to get married we'll have a few kids together we'll get divorced (laughs) but the mind can the mind can just create this whole fantasy you know in the course of a few minutes Or we get caught in the desire of just enjoying our own internal dramas. You know, we all just have these dramas of our lives which we can get lost in again and again and again and in some way we're enjoying them. Another mental note which I found helpful for these kind of fantasies, dead end. Because they don't go anyplace. It's just a dead end. You know, we're going down this road, we're spending all this time uselessly because then we'll wake up at a certain point, come back, and again be moving forward. So if we can catch it quickly and note it quickly, we actually save ourselves a lot of time and a lot of energy. on a deeper level, and this is something which you might want to really explore in your lives, because that is to see in times of suffering, when we're suffering in one way or another, just to look and see how often that suffering is being created by some kind of wanting. I'll just give you one brief example. This is years ago. I had just broken up in a relationship that I had been in for some time, and it wasn't didn't break up on my doing for my part. So it was difficult, and you know you probably often made one way or another with that. So there I was, you know, the relationship ended. But I saw something really clearly in the suffering of it. I saw that I could either continue wanting and suffer, or let go of the wanting and not suffer. And what was so interesting to me, and this this took, I was really looking very deeply into this. What was really interesting to me was that I saw that the wanting was a choice. And that's something we don't often see. We think we're just victims of the wanting. You know, that somehow it's there and we have to suffer because of it. To see that wanting is a choice. So again, this is just a suggestion to begin to explore in one's life. To see, maybe, possibilities of freedom that we might not have known were there. (laughs) It's getting late. I'm, I'm always conscious of the time, so I'm trying to compress things. Just one last little piece about wanting desire, which is, really becomes very clear in the meditative process. And that is that desire and wanting is impermanent like everything else. And so when we see that clearly, when a desire arises in the mind, we don't have to necessarily fulfill it in order to resolve it. Because by itself, it will come and it will go. And it's very interesting to watch that moment when a desire that is present disappears, when it leaves. Because in that very moment of watching a desire leave, it feels like it's being let out of the grip of something. Do you follow what I mean? And it's so relieving to feel that. So again, it's just to be watching. As it comes up, to work with it, to be mindful, to notice, to watch how it all unfolds. It's important to understand that all of these hindrances are not intrinsic to the mind. They're not who we are. They're visitors. They come at certain times. The problem is, that they've come so often, and we often attend to them carelessly, that we think they live here. You know, they think, that's who I am. Well, I'm just a sleepy kind of guy. Or, you know, well, I'm just angry. That's how I am. That's the mistake. It's not who we are. These states arise when certain conditions are present. They pass away when the conditions are not there. And so we can be mindful of them. And in the mindfulness, we free ourselves from that identification. It brings about a great sense of ease in our lives when we begin to explore this place of freedom. I'd just like to close with something that the Native American writer, Louise Erdrich wrote. I just came across this in an article about her. It It was quoting. She wrote, those powerful moments of true knowledge, which we paper over with daily life. But every so often something shatters like ice, and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. And this is really the meditation practice. (coughs) We're shattering the ice, falling into the river of our own existence. We are aware. This is our practice. Let's sit for just a moment or two.